0: Hey, listeners, I'm so excited to be announcing season two of the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine featuring the great Dr. Carolyn Chan and a bunch of her friends who are all fantastic addiction medicine physicians. They're so knowledgeable. They have so much practical knowledge that they're gonna continue to teach you. If you haven't heard it yet, make sure you go in your podcast app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get them, and go listen to season one. And then season two, it's gonna start coming out every week starting today. So check out this first episode called Listener Q&A, where they answer some common listener questions. And later this season, they have a bunch of great stuff like using injectable medications to treat substance use disorder, how to interpret a urine drug screen, buprenorphine for chronic pain. So much fantastic stuff. Don't miss it. And enjoy this first episode.
1: The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. The topics discussed should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly Cashlack Memorial Hospital. In short, we aren't responsible if you screw up. Please do your homework and let us know if we got something wrong.
2: Well, welcome back to The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine, and we are so excited to kick off season two. We made it. It means people listen to us enough where people actually wanted us to have a season two, which is solid and beyond my wildest expectations. So I'm Dr. Carolyn Chan, and tonight I'm joined by all my co-hosts. So we have Dr. Kenny Morfer, Dr. Natalie Stahl, and Dr. Sean Cohen. And we are so excited to be here together to help kick off our first episode of the season. And for tonight's episode, we're going to shake it up a little bit. So instead of doing our traditional cases, we're going to be answering your questions. We just had so many of them from listeners, we thought it'd be great to just take some time and go through them. So before we get started, Kenny, will you remind the audience what we do on this show?
1: Sure, Carolyn. We are the addiction medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to demystify common addiction medicine topics, reduce stigma, and inspire listeners to be fierce advocates for all individuals who use substances. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account.
3: Special thanks to the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine, also known as ACAM, who partnered with us to help support Curbsider's Addiction Medicine miniseries. ACAM is a proud home for academic addiction medicine faculty and trainees and is dedicated to training and supporting the next generation of academic addiction medicine leaders. So visit their website at acam.org to learn more about their organization.
2: Whether you're an addiction medicine physician, physician preparing for the ABPM boards or a physician and practice looking to learn more about the addiction medicine field, ACAM offers several self-study products that would help meet your needs. Their professional practice bundle includes 86 self-assessment modules that provide CME as well as 46 didactic lecture recordings. ACAM's board prep bundle also offers access to the 46 didactic lecture recordings along with a nearly 200... 200 people item question bank and it's addiction e-practice test to learn more about these and other products look at them up at acam.org
0: we cover a lot in this episode q a more like q and yay oh good at least somebody laughed at that yeah we covered a lot of questions so it's hard to get a couple pearls but you'll hear a little bit about use disorder a little bit about alcohol use disorder and culture change it's going to be great so without further ado let's get to it <laughs>
2: All right, everybody. It's amazing to have everybody here today. And now we're going to kick off our lightning round. And you may be wondering, well, we know all of you. So, like, what could you possibly tell us about yourself that we don't know? Well, you know, I think we've all had some major life updates. So I think we're going to just kind of go around and give a one-liner about updates, where you are, where your interests are. Honestly, anything else you just feel like you want to share with the world.
1: Okay, I'm going to start because I have the the least updates out of this group. Um, So hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kenny Morford. I am an internal medicine doctor, an addiction medicine physician. Um, I'm a clinician educator, and I work primarily at a large opioid opioid treatment program um, where I provide both primary care and addiction treatment services. I also attend on the addiction consult service. I'm an associate program director of our Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and I'm trying to think of something exciting that I've done, but I think it most of the exciting things I, I have done and are currently doing have to do with collaborations with Dr. Carolyn Chan. <laughs> um, I'm learning improv from Dr. Chan. Uh, I'm learning how to podcast from Carolyn Chan. And so I think those are the main things taking up my time in a joyous way. You guys are my favorite collaborators, I have to say. <laughs>
2: but Kenny, give us one fun thing, like something totally uh, random about your interests or what do you like to do in your free time?
1: Well, uh, I like to cook a lot. So I cook almost every night. Actually, this is when I was in med school. That's when I really got into cooking um, because it was the only time that I would stop studying, basically. I needed this like time when I couldn't be occupied with anything else and cooking seemed to do that. And while I was a med student, I never ordered food once. I either cooked every night or I you know, went out with friends and had dinner, had other people cook for, for me.
0: Did you did you go to med school before Uber Eats? Like, I just don't understand how this is possible.
1: <laughs> In fact, I did go to med school before Uber Eats.
0: Explains <laughs> everything. Sorry to call you out. Yeah, sorry.
2: <laughs> um, Natalie, what about yourself? Tell us what are you up to these days.
3: So these days, I am a family and addiction med doc at Greater Lawrence Family Health Center, where I did residency. So it's a multi-site federally qualified health center. It's about 20 miles north of Boston. And I split my time between addiction medicine consults at the community hospital. I work on the mobile health unit serving folks who are facing homelessness. And I work in a regular clinic doing a mix of family medicine and addiction medicine. And for fun outside of work things, Being back in the Boston area means I've been able to rejoin my favorite radically inclusive brass band where I get to, you know, play an instrument of my choosing most Sundays and sometimes dance in public. So if you're ever in the Harvard or, you know, (laughs) Somerville area and it's a Sunday afternoon, look up School of Honk because we're a lot of fun.
2: I also enjoy when you show me costumes and
3: you discuss about maybe I'll be a dinosaur today. I was a dinosaur for Halloween for the parade, but mostly we were polka dots. So I have a lot of polka dot clothing that I, now that I'm back in Boston, have to, you know, collect more. So that's me. Yes,
2: look for Natalie and her polka dots. (laughs) Sean, what are are you up to these days?
0: I... I feel like I have the least updates. Actually, I—I I mean, I am a still a clinician educator in the same place, working mostly on an addiction med consult service, and having a lot of fun with kind of lots of different learners, fellows, med students, residents, sometimes. And um, otherwise, I mean, life updates is uh, probably by the time this airs. I guess I'll have two children, which is shocking and terrifying. Two, almost both under two, which I feel like. I don't know how it will survive. So hopefully I'll see you guys in season three too, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Your turn.
2: Yes. And I actually think by the time this technically airs, I will be unemployed for a couple Yay. months. And I gotta say, I'm really looking forward to taking some time off. Um, but after that, I'm going to start a new position at the university of Cincinnati. So I'll do a little bit of everything, some, inpatient addiction consults, outpatient addiction and primary care and just like teach stuff. I don't know what precisely, like probably a lot of addiction related content, but um, but yeah, I'm excited to to head back
1: to the Midwest. All right. Well, I think we should get started um, with our first question. And, you know, we've got questions from all over the country. It's so exciting. So let's start with our first question from a listener from Edmonds, Washington. What are the best ways to approach transitioning from daily prescribed opioids to buprenorphine or methadone maintenance therapy?
2: I think the first thing is, one, the patient's input is really important. You know, I think there are a number of ways to do this. But I want to start down, start first with the transition from opioids to methadone, just because they're both full agonists. So I think it's a little bit more straightforward. Um, so for example, when can you start methadone if somebody is on, you know, oxycodone? honestly you can start at the same day as your last dose you don't have to worry about precipitated withdrawal or anything like that since they both have similar mechanisms of action but i do think it's important to say that you can't it's not so straightforward as to simply calculate the mme of like oxycodone or hydromorphone to methadone because methadone is a really unique opioid. It has a really long half-life with a wide variability of metabolism between individuals. It actually takes five to seven days to reach steady state. So if you increase it too quickly, it can cause like sedation or put somebody at risk of an overdose. And the doses are at risk of stacking if you adjust it too quickly. So generally, if I'm gonna just start methadone, you can start at the same day as their last dose of oxycodone. I generally start it low and would increase it, you know, every three to five days. So I wouldn't do like an MME to MME to conversion because that's not quite accurate in terms of how we think about methadone. Um, because again, you can always give more, but you can't give less. And you can always keep supplementing, you know, with PRN oxycodone until they're on an adequate dose of methadone. Now, if somebody has a diagnosis of opioid use disorder um, and they're using high amounts of prescribed opioids, often the starting dose, you know, is... 30 to 40 milligrams of methadone a day, and then you increase by 10 milligrams every three days. Um, Again, but if someone does not have an opioid use disorder and they're not on very high amounts of oxycodone, I'd probably be a little bit more conservative and start anywhere from like five milligram daily to 10 milligram three times a day, just depending on their opioid tolerance and increase in increments by five to 10. Do you guys do something similar for the conversion of Um, other opioids to methadone?
0: Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, in the hospital, I think I do like very similar. If someone doesn't have an opioid disorder and they're on chronic opioids, I mean, honestly, like I am generally less involved in that because they don't have an opioid use disorder and have an addiction med consult. But if they do, I think I start similarly at like 30 milligrams for most people if they're on like very low doses of Oxy and have an opioid use disorder, 20 milligrams and then up titrate every couple of days. But I think it's worth saying again, like opioid use disorder using prescribed meds that are not prescribed, right, may also have tons of fentanyl in them and then people can have higher tolerances. So like it's important to talk with people about where they're getting these prescribed opioids too, I think too. But.
2: Totally. And then for buprenorphine, you know, it's it's more complicated. Uh, I think in general there are two options. So one is what we consider traditional induction, and the second is a low dose protocol based on patient preference. So for d- traditional induction, it means you know we would have to stop the short acting opioid for at least twelve hours before, before starting buprenorphine. And for a low dose protocol, what this means is you keep people on their full agonist opioid, and you slowly increase the dose of buprenorphine until you can essentially just stop the full agonist opioid. So many patients actually prefer the low-dose protocol because they don't have to go through withdrawal, though it can take like up to a week to make the switch. But there are some patients who just want to like make the switch quickly. And luckily for you, we have many episodes this season that will discuss this more in detail. So we have a great episode on low-dose buprenorphine for you guys, as well as one on using buprenorphine for chronic pain, who will talk us through a little bit more of the protocols that you can use to make those transitions.
3: And something I just will add is sometimes it's really important to keep track of, are there prescribed opioids long-acting or not long-acting? Because sometimes there's long-acting ones in there, so it's much easier to start traditional initiation or induction if it is a short acting opioid only but when they're longer acting it becomes a little bit more complicated you may have to wait longer or switch them to all short acting before you switch them so when it's longer acting I don't I'm more of a maybe we should do a low dose start because it's complicated otherwise
2: it's a great point and definitely ask the patient too, because sometimes patients will be saying, Oh, I, I am supplementing with X, Y, and Z. And I think for our next question, we have from Noah from Western Massachusetts. And his question is What are your thoughts on recommending a low dose buprenorphine initiation, such as the burden use method or sometimes called microdosing, as a harm reduction te- technique in primary care?
3: I think that in terms of really practical aspects of what does that look like? What does harm reduction, buprenorphine look like? um, It's an area where we all wish we had more data and more information. And a lot of times, we should ask our patients if they have any experience using buprenorphine in ways to reduce their use or protect them from withdrawal symptoms. I have a general sense that I think others might share, but it's definitely an expert opinion and not based on tons of evidence that um, many some people can use about four milligrams of buprenorphine a day um, and find that to be a harm reduction dose that works, or some people can skip one day of buprenorphine at a time and restart the next day and that's a way to kind of take buprenorphine in a harm reduction way. but I get the impression that it is it's sometimes really difficult for to do. It's like some patients, it works better than other patients. Um, so it's something that I talk about with people and I'll offer, um, the ideas of using low dose starts and low dose bup, um, for harm reduction. But I think how, what, how exactly they do that and how well it works really depends. I don't know if other people have experiences.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point And I, I mean, one of the things that I think about with this question and transitioning someone who maybe wants to continue using or isn't sure, like if they um, are going to be able to completely stop, is to see the low dose initiation through, like through the process, and you know, encourage people to try to get up to a therapeutic dose of buprenorphine that we typically think of is between 16 and 24 milligrams a day, uh, because I think in that case. At least we, you know, with those doses, people typically can have cravings and withdrawal symptoms adequately controlled, and they have more overdose protection. And I've also just come across a few cases where people would go into like, you know, maybe two to three days of the low dose initiation and then stop and then feel uncomfortable, have withdrawal symptoms, start using more fentanyl to try to get out, get out of it, and then come back a week or two later saying, let's try this again. And that can go on for months, and it's not, you know, it doesn't feel productive or helpful to the patient. So I think, if possible, trying to really transition them all the way over, and then once they're on a stable dose, maybe they're gonna continue using intermittently or whatever it might be, but at least we know that they're on that therapeutic dose of buprenorphine. I think with,
0: and with bup, anyway, it's like, Uh, again, marrying harm reduction or bupe, bup, like if someone's continuing to use while they're on bup, whether you got them on through low dose initiation or some other initiation, like them continuing to use should not mean that you're stopping bup, right? Like bup, stopping the medication that is treatment for opioid use disorder because they're having symptoms of opioid use disorder makes zero sense, right? And so I think it's just worth like, hammering that point home of, like, if you're a PCP and you're prescribing bup, you should not be stopping it if someone's continuing to use. That might be their goal. That might not be their goal in the long term. It's still not going to help them to stop this medication. There's really no wrong way to get on to bup
2: is kind of my (laughs) philosophy at this point. (laughs) Fentanyl has really changed induction practices in certain parts of the country, and I think we just have to be flexible, learn what options are, learn what patient experiences are, and just kind of work with them and and move forward, But you can definitely do it in the outpatient setting. You can definitely do it in an in inpatient setting. You know, these are all things that we encourage you to listen, again, to our excellent low-dose buprenorphine episode on to, to learn more about how to do this in a practical way in the outpatient setting.
3: And I'll just add one last thing, which I think is, I think the difficulty of starting bup- in the fentanyl era, makes this question even more important because if there are ways for people to continue buprenorphine once they're on to get on and help them keep them in their systems, so they don't have to start from the beginning in the future. It's even more important because sometimes it's seen as such; it becomes such a big hurdle for patients to restart. So I think that having a harm reduction approach to bup is even more important right now.
2: And briefly, too, we probably should have explained why fentanyl may make it more challenging to start buprenorphine. So, fentanyl is really lipophilic. So, if you're using a lot of fentanyl, it kind of like stores in your adipose tissues and can get excreted. So, it can kind of mimic in some ways like a longer acting opioid, though it's not really, you know, a long acting opioid, which is why it may take patients a longer period of essence from fentanyl to be able to start. Prenorphine. in the traditional way yeah. in the traditional way yes
0: yeah. yeah okay question number three from dr sonia tredici from gettysburg pennsylvania and the host of the addiction med journal club podcast addiction podcast friends uh she said and i think we're paraphrasing a little bit but i encounter patients who have been stable for a long time on a quote-unquote kind of standard dose of buprenorphine who request an increase in dose because they're having cravings or some kind of discomfort that they associate with withdrawal. They say they won't have a recurrence of use, but they do feel like they feel better on a higher dose. Um, And there's no really clear cause as to why this is happening or an increase in current stressors. And so um, kind of... I I think they're kind of getting at what is the appropriate response. Could they have developed tolerance? Is it possible? They're asking for more medications for another reason, such as wanting extra or diverting it.
3: So I think it's an important question. Um, and there's a lot of kind of different parts to pull out. Um, one is this question of, are they really on the same dose? Um, have there been any changes in either how they take it, the formulation, like tablets versus films, the brand, how they, whether they eat or drink close to it, whether they smoke, because those are all things that can kind of affect your absorption and how much actual buprenorphine is active in your system. Um, so find out those questions. Um, and if those that hasn't changed, I agree that it's unlikely for patients to have true opioid withdrawal after a year of... Um, being on that dose. So the first response should be to say, is there anything else going on there? And a lot of times people who have had opioid use disorder, they've experienced things like night sweats anxiety many, many times in the context of opioid withdrawal. So when they feel symptoms like that, similar sensations, it reminds them of withdrawal. So they might assume that's what it is, or it might, it might be understandable that they kind of feel like buprenorphine is a a solution to those feelings but we know that there's other medical and psychological issues that can cause similar symptoms so like keep your primary cat primary Hat. primary care <laughs> cap on. That took me a long primary time to get on. on.
0: <laughs> keep your primary cat Make sure your primary cat is with you.
3: And <laughs> keep the hat on also.
2: Yeah, and I'm also on the hat.
3: Also have a My hat. primary
2: cat gives great advice. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um and like are they are there B symptoms? Have we thought about their thyroid? You know, are they could they have menopause? You know, think about those big Picture things. Um, think about the psychological piece. Is it possible that there's anxiety or PTSD that was previously more stifled that's coming to the surface? And ask about social stressors. Ask them to, if they can pinpoint any like, triggers for cravings recently. Um, check in about whether they've been in terms of counseling or mutual support groups. But all that said, um, I keep an open mind, and I do not rule out a dose increase just because someone has been like quote-unquote stable on a, on a dose for a while. Um, because I think the question is, what, what do we mean by doing well, and what do we mean by a standard dose? Um, there are some places in the country where there's a lot of pressure to keep people on the lowest their lowest dose at which they feel okay, which might be eight milligrams, but they might still have cravings on that dose. It's possible they've had cravings on this dose the whole time, and either you're a new doctor to them, or they. Just felt comfortable telling you about these cravings now. Um, and um, so, just because they were abstinent on that dose doesn't necessarily mean it was therapeutic for them then or it's going to be therapeutic for them now because cravings are an indication to increase the dose. Um, and I try not to focus too much on kind of secondary reasons they might be asking, um, both because, like, I can understand if someone wants to round up kind of to have a little, a few extra in case they, this emergency happens on the day they're due. I, I can like understand that. And I don't think that, like, we should make sure that patients are taking the medication that we're prescribing and getting benefit from it. I, I don't, I want to give my patients the benefit of the doubt that if they're taking the medication and they're telling you how they feel, I want to treat symptoms of, and cravings that they have it. And I guess I'd give another, a plug for thinking about XRBUP, which for some people having that steady state in your system and sometimes a higher um, kind of level in your system might help figure out some of these things of how much it's really physiological. And I think we're going to have an episode on that too. Are we going to have an episode on that too?
2: We are going to have an episode on that Great.
3: Too.
0: <laughs> 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 Thank God.
2: <laughs> we did plan the season out before we recorded <laughs> I think that's a great approach. So just to summarize, one, put your primary care hat on, you know, are there any other medical reasons that this person could be experiencing those physiologic symptoms? Two, the dose matters. We think that 16 to 24 is often the therapeutic dose for most patients. So if a patient is on, you know, a subtherapeutic dose, it may be worth considering increasing. And overall, you know, I think, again, we think that buprenorphine is a pretty safe medication. And it's unfortunate that it's so hard to access in the community, but we don't sort of, in our practice and my practice as well, I, I don't stress too much about like diversion or secondary, you know, reasons. I will say in my practice, if somebody's on like 32 milligrams of bup, I'm I'm probably not gonna increase it just because I don't think there's evidence really for benefit above that. But I'm curious, do you guys sort of use that number too as kind of a cap?
1: That's usually what I what I do in the outpatient setting. Um, Yeah, if someone's under 24 milligrams, then I have a really low threshold to to bump up that dose. Um, If they say any sort of like uh, I kind of have like you know I had cravings or like a drug dream and I'm like, well, what do you want to do with your dose? And if it's below 24, I'll go up. And then I have a handful of patients who are on 32, typically don't really go above that. The two, or one of the things I would add is this, you know, I don't know if the question really gets to this, but just other situations when we might need to increase the dose or it's appropriate. I think that happens with um, pregnancy. So, you know, especially later in pregnancy, we should expect that a patient might need to increase their dose. Certain medications like rifampin, so I was treating a patient for latent TB infection and we increased this patient's dose. So just be aware that there are certain things that may make someone metabolize more quickly or need need a higher dose, even if they were stable for a very long time on that dose before.
3: Hmm. Cytochrome things always come back together as an addiction medicine. You thought that you wouldn't need them after you took step, but it turns out yeah. there's always cytochrome yeah. things.
2: Yeah. Whenever I have a question, I'll often run it by actually all of you three. And Natalie
3: will just be like, it's cytochrome things. It's cytochrome things. <laughs> and I think that I'll just, one of the challenges of this question too, just to sum up is, Oftentimes these patients who are stable we're only seeing once a month, and sometimes it's hard to make sure that we have time to check in with them, but we make a change. We should check in and see, did it help or not? And that there's really, that is the art of addiction medicine. You have to make a change and see if it helped, you know? So like there's really often no other choice other to offer a change and see if it helps and and then move from there.
1: And I know we need to get to all of our other questions, but one other point, because I know that we talked about, you know, our, how we feel about diversion. And I think it is an important point. One thing that I do think is always important to emphasize is safe storage, Um, knowing who's in the home. You know, I actually had this one patient when I was a fellow, so like, you know, years ago, whose dog ate a film of buprenorphine, naloxone, but it was in its wrapping and it luckily came out the other side intact. But (laughs) I ask about children, pets, other people in the house, where they're storing it. I just think it's an important thing. We don't want someone to be exposed to any sort of medication that could cause adverse consequences. So something to keep in mind
3: especially when it's not the films because the tablets are often not in single-use containers. So if there's that many more pills out there, they're small, um, but that much more important to keep an eye on it, get a lockbox. A question from David Lawrence from California. So... He would love discussion with a clinical trialist about injectable naltrexone as MOUD, a medication for opioid use disorder, um, the methods of analysis in the XBOT trial, and the more recent reanalysis of the XBOT data. So essentially, but the big picture part of this question is, is there ever a clinical scenario in which you should actually consider giving a patient with opioid use disorder long-acting injectable naltrexone?
0: Ooh, good question. I, I will say I do not wear a hat that says clinical trialist, and I don't think I ever will. So it's going to be a little hard for me to answer from that perspective. But I mean, I think like my my number one takeaway, or my, I guess my two takeaways are, one is I think XBOT or not, there is enough data at this point, I think, mostly observational real-world data that, that shows that methadone and bup, incredibly effective, reduced mortality by 50% over and over and over again. And that just based on the again data available does not seem to be true with naltrexone and so for me naltrexone is very clearly second line treatment for opioid use disorder but I think there are situations where I still consider it Um, and I think those situations are someone who is not using opioids currently generally and kind of for some reason wants to be on a medication that's not an opioid agonist or doesn't have access, if they live in a place where there just isn't access to buprenorphine and isn't access to methadone, which should not be the case. But unfortunately, in our country, there are deserts like this. Those are the cases where I would consider it more. Um, I don't know if you guys have other perspectives on that. I, and we could go a little bit into bot after, but I don't.
2: I have used it. And patients who have wanted to come off their methadone and buprenorphine and still wanted a little bit of a safety net after, which I think is reasonable. So if my patients want to stay on MOUD indefinitely, I'm totally cool with that. Also, some folks say, hey, I wanna, I'm wanna. i doing really well. I want to try and taper off. And also, I want a little bit of security just in case I do start having cravings, right? And and then we can rediscuss sort of reinitiation of some of these medications. So those are patients that I'll consider I think like adolescents as well, you know, with opioid use disorder, I I still think that um, that would be another reasonable time to consider it and put it on the table.
3: Um, I've considered it for patients with comorbid alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder who really felt like alcohol was a big problem, especially if they'd done well on naltrexone before. So either they were not currently on MOUD or they wanted to taper and their OUD had been stable for a long time. Um, that's one group. Or patients who've been stable for a long time and had persistent opioid-associated constipation or side effects, you know, who wanted an alternative. But I think I agree with everything that's been said about reasons so far, And but people who want the naltrexone for another reason, especially alcohol use disorder, um, who I've reason to believe will be, their OUD will be stable on it, are other people I consider it for.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I... I maybe treat like one or two patients with extended-release naltrexone for opioid use disorder a year, and it's almost always um, people who ask for it, like they feel yeah. very strongly about not okay. being on methadone or buprenorphine. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that Carolyn brought up the adolescent population because, you know, I'm an internist. I don't treat adolescents, but um, I work with some people who do. And, you know, one of the things that I always learn from them is that... Uh, opioid use disorder can look very different in different, you know, demographic groups, especially like adolescents, where it might be more of like a binge pattern use. It's, um, you know, people are having negative consequences. There might be some control issues, but it's not really like the severe physical dependent symptoms that we're seeing. And in those Mm -hmm. cases, um, you know, injectable naltrexone might be, might be, the best or most preferred option for, for some adolescent patients.
2: Sean, actually, do you mind, either Sean or Kenny, just telling the audience and what x his- actually is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I don't remember the exact details, but it was a, I think XBOT was like this large randomized control trial through the clinical trials network that compared extended release naltrexone um, versus sublingual buprenorphine naloxone for the treatment of opioid use disorder. I think it was mostly in kind of inpatient medically managed withdrawal settings is where it started. And then they went to the outpatient setting is my recollection. And, and the original paper found that Essentially, BUPE was better when they analyzed people who actually took the, or analyzed everybody, but in people who were actually able to start the medication kind of per protocol analysis, they looked relatively similar, although there's been reanalyses that suggest that maybe overdoses were undercounted and stuff like that. But I think the big takeaways are, if you did it as a randomized control trial and analyzed it, kind of the way we analyze ana- randomized control trials, bup was better from an overdose perspective, and and the reason, what or part of the reason was because it was impossible to get people onto naltrexone because you had to get through a whole week of withdrawal and get all the opioids out of your system before starting it, and that is still the case, and maybe more complicated by like what we we're talking about. Fentanyl makes withdrawal harder and crappier, and so ex- except for people who. Again, really want to be on naltrexone and understand what that means, or or do not have a physiologic dependence. I think um, those people are the ones that I think about naltrexone, but other people I really don't think about it.
2: And we'll put a link in the show notes to all these papers so you guys can like take your own deep dive and tweet at us. You know, tell us tell us your hot take. Tell us, um,
0: tell us how we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my turn to ask a question now. Uh, this one. From Anthony Accurso over at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center in Paramus, New Jersey. How might medical withdrawal management facilities, which are formerly kind of called detox facilities, help with opioid agonist treatment, induction, and connection to care in the era of fentanyl?
1: Uh, great question. <laughs> And you know, I, I love that this question uses updated terminology. So, calling these medically uh, or medical withdrawal management facilities, not detox facilities, uh, which has kind of fallen out of favor in terms of what we call these programs. In terms of um, the potential, well, you know. I'm, before we even get into like, the role that these faci- facilities can have in helping people get on medications for opioid use disorder, I think we should just talk about this idea of like withdrawal management or as we used to call detox versus treatment and just emphasizing that those are two separate things so treating withdrawal is not treating opioid use disorder and i think that's something that people used to feel like that was the treatment you send someone away for like you know 7 days 10 days to some facility they're given tapering doses of methadone and then look they're off of all opioids and then we send them back into the world and that approach can really be harmful with opioid use disorder because people can lose their tolerance. They go back out into the environment that they were in where they were using. And if they return to use, then it puts them at higher risk of having an overdose and potentially dying. Um, So, you know, the role of, of managing withdrawal should really be in the context of treating them with one of the first line medications, which is either methadone or buprenorphine. So with that said, um, How can these facilities be helpful in starting some of these meds? Well, I think they can be especially helpful with starting buprenorphine. um, And for patients who've had a hard time getting onto buprenorphine um, in the fentanyl era, you know, Carolyn had discussed some about the lipophilic quality, some of these challenges that people have experienced. So there might be patients who just want to be in a supervised setting to be able to make that transition there Um, and i think some of the benefits of being in a supervised setting is one patients might prefer it and feel safer um, and also they may provide certain medications like benzodiazepines possibly ketamine if that's available um, to help people through withdrawal um, that might not be available, you know, certainly not available in outpatient settings or, uh, you know, with a a home initiation. So I think that those are some of the benefits. We already talked about injectable naltrexone being a second-line option, but if somebody really wants to do it, then this might be a place where they could be managed through their withdrawal ensure that they no longer have opioids in their system and then receive their first dose of naltrexone before being discharged. Um, and just a point about methadone, you know I don't really think there is necessarily a role for managing withdrawal prior to methadone, because you don't have to have a period of abstinence be- before starting that medication. Um, but what we are seeing with fentanyl is that some people need higher methadone doses to treat their symptoms. and being in a supervised setting could potentially allow for some of these more aggressive and innovative approaches like rapid methadone up titration. Um, And, you know, back to buprenorphine, it might allow for doing low dose initiations, high dose initiations with some of those supportive meds that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, Let's see, final thing that I think withdrawal management programs can help with is... uh, connecting patients to care. You know, at the end of the day, we want people to be in long-term care. So hooking patients up with um, outpatient prescribers for buprenorphine, an opioid treatment program for methadone, harm reduction resources, um, behavioral counseling resources. I think those are all the things that could really benefit patients if they're able to get it in one place.
0: Yeah, I think that was a great overview, Kenny, of kind of the role i think the role that these uh, medically managed medical withdrawal <laughs> management <laughs> facilities play that's a mouthful sorry about that
2: acronym yeah
0: i think like i mean this always comes back to the same thing in my mind of like and i think this is something that i think was drilled to me during fellowship and it and just really rings true of like there really should be no wrong door right like you should be able to go to a medically managed withdrawal facility. You should be able to go to a primary care clinic. You should be able to go to an addiction medical clinic. You should be able to go to a hospital. In every single place, you should be able to get on medications and be able to connect with continued medication. And so this is just one, I think, one extra place where we should be able to do that.
3: And I think the tricky part in practice is no wrong door, but we don't always know what the door is, what, what's behind the doors from our perspective. So I think for me, and I just moved to a new community, I don't know which talks or medically managed withdrawal facilities off or what. So I think as much as you can having an idea, even if it's a shared document you have with your coworkers of what's available in the different places you might send people because you do not know whether they might get the methadone taper or not. So if you're sending them to a place, make sure that it's gonna provide them with support that's gonna be helpful to them because it is not by default necessarily going to be the case. So um, that's that's the hard part of this to me.
1: Really good points. All right, let's move on to our next question. So this is from Sonia Ristine from the Chicagoland area. Do you have pearls to help patients wean off of kratom?
3: Kratom. So I'll take this one. I'm going to try to go through basics really quickly in case people aren't familiar. But kratom, it's a tree. It grows in Southeast Asia, has complex pharmacology. The alkaloids bind to mu, delta, kappa, opioid receptors to serotonin to adrenergic receptors. Um, when people are using it in the U.S., it's often brewed as a tea or you can buy it in capsule form and swallow it. And it's not regulated by the FDA or the Controlled Substances Act. So in most, but not all states, it's legal to buy. Um, so people... Use it to treat pain, titrate off opioids or as an alternative to other opioids. So if someone comes to you wanting to titrate off, one question is, what are you using it for? Like, what effect does it have for you? What does it help you with? Um, And see if they have any evidence of dependence or of a substance use disorder. Um, While there's... there is lots of the internet saying, oh, it's not addictive, quote unquote. But there is evidence that it can cause physical dependence and probably uh, opioid use disorder. So if they're trying to taper down on their own and they're struggling, but you don't think they have an opioid use disorder, um, it's important to recognize that lower doses can have more stimulation and effects and might cause more anxiety. So it might have to do with the fact that different dosages have different effects. Um, And if they have an opioid use disorder or they have opioid dependence, they have chronic pain and they want to stop using Kratom and want an alternative treatment, there are case studies of using buprenorphine to treat it. Um, There's a review in the Journal of Addiction Medicine that kind of looked at a few examples and dosages essentially saying, if you're less than 20 grams of Kratom a day, start them on two to on four to eight, and using higher doses, start them on 12 to 16, but, and probably you can start them similarly to the way you start other, um, you start people who are using other opioids, wait for physiological withdrawal and start it. Um, But it's definitely a new area, and an area where it's really just case studies. So it's kind of a tough, there's more to learn all the time. Are any other thoughts or experiences starting VUP in folks using Kratom? Amongst this group,
1: I've done it a couple times and it's worked out well, um, but I think I've have a, an n of three.
3: <laughs> Can people have precipitated? <laughs> that's a K- yeah, that's okay, Siri. <laughs> do you worry about precipitated withdrawal or starting too early when people are in kratom? Or do you have you not seen that?
1: I have not seen that actually. You know, and it's interesting because at lower doses, it has this like stimulant effect, and so I, you know, the two of the people who ended up. You know, developing this kratom use disorder, I guess, and benefiting from buprenorphine treatment, they they started it for the stimulant effects, but then. Um, as the dose increased, then the opioid effects started to kick in and then they developed this physiologic dependence to it.
3: It's complex, complex situation, complex drug. So, but we're going to learn more. And are there
2: cytochromes
1: involved, Natalie?
3: There are cytochromes involved, actually. It is a cytochrome. It is, Kratom actually is a cytochrome inhibitor, I think. So yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, Question for Sean. Um, Mm. So it's, um, from someone in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and can you start um, naltrexone for alcohol use disorder to patients in alcohol withdrawal before hospital discharge? And was saying this was a routine practice when they were to the VA, but now they're in a different hospital and they're getting pushback about not having enough days of abstinence before starting um, naltrexone. Could it make drinking worse? Could you have worse outcomes?
0: I mean, I'll be honest. It's not something that I've ever heard about. I, I know there is like, and it's something I actually looked up when we got this question. But there, I know there is some data, and there's some thought that like the, camper say which is another medication for alcohol use disorder, needs a period of, of kind of abstinence, and that's maybe why some trials were positive for it, and, and some of the and more of the U.S. trials, like this, the big trial that we often talk about, the combined trial, was negative for it. Um, it hasn't been something that I heard of for naltrexone. There is a meta-analysis that suggests that periods of abstinence when you start is helpful but i think that being said like some of the great data for naltrexone is not with a goal of abstinence it's a goal of reduction of drinking and i think like there is very little literature there's like a couple of small studies that look at starting medications for alcohol use disorder and particularly naltrexone in the hospital and i think this it's such a like i think we know of the hospital as and we think often as this like reachable moment like it, there's like some data that five to 10% of hospital admissions people have either problematic alcohol use or are being admitted for withdrawal or have a complication that, and wind up having withdrawal unrelated to the reason for their admission. So this is like a place where we should be starting evidence-based treatment to help people. And so what I would say is like, I mean, most people who are who are who have alcohol withdrawal are going to be in the hospital for a couple of days and are going to have this period of non-use anyway. And so, but I think like we should definitely be arguing for and starting evidence-based treatment before discharge for alcohol use disorder, and that includes naltrexone. I don't know if y'all strongly <laughs> endorse differently. Strongly endorse. Agree. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my turn, <laughs> Carolyn, on the naltrexone note, um, what are your thoughts on the Sinclair method? Well, I wish I was famous enough to have something named after me. Maybe one day. The Sinclair, maybe one day. Hopefully something positive. The Sinclair method for treating alcohol use disorder. And the person also adds they have some patients who want to decrease their alcohol intake but not completely abstain.
2: Yeah, this is a great question. So the Sinclair method also is commonly called the targeted naltrexone method. So What is targeted naltrexone? It's essentially just taking naltrexone as needed on days where you either have alcohol cravings or an anticipation of days where there may be heavy drinking periods, such as a wedding or a social gathering, right? Where the individual wants to sort of cut back on their use there are a number of studies that support that this can be effective. I'm not going to discuss them here today, but we'll make sure to link them in the show notes. But I think, yeah, absolutely. So individuals can take naltrexone as needed on those days. Also, you could argue, again, as Sean said, the best evidence is really for decreasing heavy alcohol use. So you could also still take it every day and have a goal not to abstain, but just use it you know, to cut down your number of drinks. Her day from 12 to 8, and that would also, I think, be considered a win, and it's totally okay to use naltrexone in either of those ways.
3: One of the reasons I like talking about this as an option is because it really drives home the point that it's safe to take naltrexone if you drink, because it's often a concern of patients because they've heard of disulfiram, and when I tell them this is an option, it really drives home the point that I'm saying it is absolutely safe. You might not enjoy drinking as much, but it is absolutely safe to take Naltrexone when drinking. So I like, it's been one of the side effects of me sometimes offering this.
0: Yeah. And I think big pitch for like, yeah, broader thing that we're talking about is like, there are non-abstinent outcomes especially in alcohol use disorder and i think this will, we'll probably get into this more in the relapse prevention episode too but like non-abstinent outcomes are like very evidence based right for alcohol like reductions in alcohol use um can really are like sustainable they reduce mortality they can improve people's quality of lives and improve tons and tons of other stuff and so like we should. It's, there is not this dichotomy of like, you're either not drinking or you're doing terribly. It's like, we need to celebrate the reductions in drinking. And those are valid goals that medications can be a part of towards helping someone achieve. And naltrexone and targeted naltrexone or naltrexone every day should be part of that discussion too.
2: Definitely be sure to check out our season one episode with Dr. Alyssa Peterkin on treatment of alcohol use disorder with different pharmacotherapy. And I think Natalie, the next question, it's up for you. So we have an anonymous question from Canada. How would you approach treating anxiety and PTSD symptoms when caring for people who have substance use disorders?
3: So I think the kind of short answer, because the longer answer you might need, Psychiatrist answer is we were we were often told, sometimes we were we were told in medical school that you should stabilize a substance use disorder before you treat any psychiatric issues. And I think that was a message that some some people may have heard at some point. And the reality is in our practice, I think most of us realize it's not often practical, and that because people's symptoms are there and need to be addressed, but also that um, it's not there's not that much evidence that the anxiety symptoms in fact come from a substance use disorder. There's a lot of things like HPA axis things or systems that can affect both of them and make sense that you would have both a substance use disorder and an anxiety disorder. Um, And there's a lot of comorbidity kind of across the board, um, probably like the 30th percent or more in either direction. So um, for me, First and foremost, like treat their treat their substance use disorder, but also assess them for anxiety disorder. Kind of try to suss out: is there any possibility they have bipolar disorder? Is this generalized anxiety disorder? Is it panic disorder? Is it PTSD? Because that will help you, even in our the primary care way that we do, start treatment, appropriate treatment, the best you can, um, and think about. Not just medication, but also CBT resources. You know, maybe it's going to help you choose whether counseling is the best option or a group. There's smart recovery is CBT-based mutual support, and it's nice to save online groups, and it's that can be really helpful for people who have anxiety disorders as well. So I think don't be afraid to assess and treat the anxiety disorders that we should be capable of treating um, as primary care docs if you're treating while you're treating Sud.
2: I think my one caveat to that is if somebody is an active withdrawal mm-hmm. or at, or at acute intoxication. Like if somebody's yes. acutely intoxicated on stimulants and they're having symptoms of psychosis, you know right. you're gonna want to let that wear off before you do your formal assessment. Right. But yeah, I I agree generally yep. we're treating them both at the same time.
3: I think there's also this post, you know, the first um time period the first month maybe after you stop using a substance you might have residual symptoms you know we know that there's there's a lot of caveats kind of to, but to how quickly after you stop using your substance might you might this be reasonable to to address but definitely don't wait six months.
2: Oh, I have other questions. We have another question from a listener in Tennessee. And I think, Kenny, this is the perfect question for you. So what is your opinion on patients who are receiving a medication for opioid use disorder who are also concurrently receiving benzodiazepine treatment or therapy?
1: Yes. Well, this is something that I see a lot. And I, I know all of you see this a lot too. So I mean, I think one thing just to say up front is that We don't have enough data to really guide good clinical care in how we approach patients who have opioid use disorder, they're treated with methadone or buprenorphine, and they're also taking benzodiazepines, um, either through a prescription or otherwise. There was a, so the FDA released this drug safety communication in 2016 that warned against um, serious risks and death of combining opioids and benzodiazepines. And I think that's really the thing that put a lot of this on the map for us. Um, and at that time, they, they kind of weren't sure what to say about methadone and buprenorphine because, you know, there are also medications that are within the class of opioids, but they're designed to treat opioid use disorder. So, you know, could we really say that the risk of using fentanyl and alprazolam is the same as being treated with methadone and being prescribed alprazolam. Um, so a year later in 2017, the FDA put out an update um, where they said that, they, you know, they, they stated that we should not withhold medications for opioid use disorder, specifically methadone and buprenorphine, from patients who are also taking benzodiazepines or other sedatives. Um, and the reason for this is that people who are using both of these substances or medications are likely to continue to use them together outside of the treatment setting. And that's likely much more dangerous than receiving an evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder while also taking a medication that um, could pose more risks. So so with all that said, bottom line is that if someone is taking benzodiazepines or is prescribed benzodiazepines, we should not withhold methadone or buprenorphine from them because we really should still treat and stabilize that opioid use disorder. Uh, There are risks to combining benzodiazepines with opioids and including methadone and buprenorphine. So we should monitor those patients more closely, especially during the initial stabilization phase. Um, That's a period that can be more risky for for harmful consequences. Um, And, you know, like I said, there isn't a ton of research around it, but the guidelines that do exist pretty much all recommend attempting to taper to discontinuation or at least getting to a lowest effective dose of the benzodiazepine um, when possible so this is one of those things where i think it's it's something we see a lot unfortunately we don't have clear guidance on what the best approach is but we want to minimize harms, and one of the ways to minimize it is to treat the opioid use disorder with methadone and buprenorphine.
3: I think we all have many complex and difficult feelings about benzodiazepines, and when their chronic benzodiazepines are ever called for appropriate, we have many thoughts about that. It would be more than an episode, but the question of whether or not to stop buprenorphine or methadone is an easier one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, agreed, agreed. (laughs) So we're taking the easy answer here. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next question. Uh, So this is a question from Holly Fisk from Anchorage, Alaska, who asks, uh, which medications have the most promising evidence for treating methamphetamine use disorder?
3: Um, I can take that one. So plug for our stimulant use disorder episode from last season, which talks about this a bit. Um, There aren't medications that have shown consistent efficacy across the board, which makes it tough, but there's some reasons for that. Um, We just wanted to point out that contingency management is not a medication. It does behavioral therapy that's first line. It's hard in practice to offer people. Um, But in, in terms of meds, um, there is generally evidence if someone has. ADHD, like known ADHD, had symptoms as a child, so there is evidence for treating appropriately with long-acting psychostimulants um, in general for stimulant disorder for people who have, have, have both. Um, and then there's two trials that came out, um, two, set, two papers that came out fairly recently. Um, the ADAPT2 trial used IM naltrexone, given every three weeks, and bupropion, 450 milligrams a day. So it's kind of a lot of those meds um, and had positive outcomes. Um, so essentially 11% fewer people had um, uh, methamphetamine positive urine samples. Um, and and then there's also um, a study looking um, in JAMA that looked at mirtazapine, 30 milligrams um it was the study was specifically done in, in cisgender men and transgender women who have sex with men. Um and it thermazipine thir- resulted in reductions in positive urine tests as well. The relative risk was in the 0.75, 0.73 range, depending on what time point you looked at. So those are the two medications that have gotten the most medication combinations gotten the most attention recently.
2: Yeah, I think too, just a reminder that in the United States, you cannot prescribe psychostimulants just for stimulant use disorder. You can prescribe psychostimulants to treat ADHD, and that's because of our laws and regulations, but probably worth saying.
3: Yes. And I think asking people about ADHD symptoms and when they started is worthwhile.
1: Yeah, the other thing I'd add just about the contingency management part is that... um, and, and I think this is what you were getting at when you're like, it can be hard to, it's like hard to, it can be hard to access for people, but if those, if you have a program in place, then it can be fairly easy to implement. It's just about having some startup resources to get it going.
3: And just for a shout out to a group in my backyard and at BMC, the family medicine group has a stimulant treatment treatment and recovery team that's been doing a lot of interesting things. So there are models out there. I think there's some programs in California. So there are models out there. And
1: mm-hmm. the VA.
3: In the VA, of course, yeah, the yeah. VA does it the most. And mm-hmm. Can I ask a, quest- a question for a- <laughs> Carolyn and everyone to wrap us all up? Yes. <laughs> um, so Dr. Portman from Chicago asks, how have you changed culture in your institutions around addiction treatment while maintaining your own well-being?
2: Changing culture is so hard. And yet I have to say the more I work with med students, residents, fellows, I am really optimistic that we're going to move the needle on decreasing stigma towards patients with substance use disorders and that we're already starting to see, you know, some of the changes. I think we can also do things like role modeling, non-stigmatizing language, right? And correcting it and calling it out when we hear it or seeing it in notes I think another thing that I've seen that's been really helpful is here we have a multidisciplinary endocarditis team run by Dr. Melissa Weimer, and she does a great job of sharing success stories with our colleagues, right, who cared for these patients to say, hey, this person did really well post their surgery. And I think that's just like really affirming to hear that we are making positive change.
1: I I just want to kind of add to your thought, your, you know, your response about having students and residents and learners like engaged in the work of taking care of people who use substances and with substance use disorders and you know for all of us we work in spaces where we provide addiction treatment and i feel like for any of our listeners that are doing it having inviting learners to be with us and see how we do this work is so important. And it's especially important for, I mean, I, I'm mostly in the outpatient setting, so I guess I'm a little bit biased, but but to see people doing well, you know, see people yeah. who are in stable treatment, living their best lives, and to say this is possible. You know, when I was in med school and actually in residency a lot too, I usually saw people with substance use disorders in the hospital coming in with alcohol withdrawal, coming in with these like crises of you know, kind of acute complications of substance use disorders. And I, that was all I saw. And instead of seeing kind of how well people can do once they're in treatment. So, uh, yeah, I just think that's one. And that's also really rewarding for me. Like today, I was with a PA student, a resident, and two fellows. And it was great. We're seeing patients together. Um, one of our patients hugged my fellow. It was re- really nice. So anyway, I mean, I think th- those are the things that make me feel like we're doing good work.
3: I think something I'd add, I agree with all that. Um, I think in the hospital setting where I spend about half my time, um, it can be sometimes difficult because of things that we want to change or do, like escalate methadone quickly or provide what seem to be to other people a very high doses of full agonist opioids to people who have concurrent OUD and a severe infection. It's really it can, sometimes you get very strong reactions to that in a, in a hospital if that's not the norm. Um, and I do think, you know, when I started residency in my community hospital, we couldn't even do methadone tapers, you know, and it's changed so much in, you know, less than 10 years, you know, what um, – what we think our standard of care amongst this group should be. you know. So I think that sometimes just doing the work and saying, I'm gonna make sure, show how successful we can be if we treat this patient well and we treat their withdrawal and we treat their pain, like show that they can stay in the hospital, show that we're gonna get them the care they need. And sometimes just doing the work changes the culture over time, but it might mean that there's gonna be some difficult moments in between. And I really do look towards my like group chats, like I need to talk through this. I got this really negative response, um, help me respond in a way that's professional, but still strong. You know, I do definitely need that back and forth, Carolyn. I will, you know, have those phone calls on the way home from work. Um, so I think having a group of people who you can reach to and speak to is very helpful for my mental well-being. Like, I don't think I could do it without having people to bounce ideas off of
0: yeah a nod to putting in the work, which I think natalie did and I mean, like there's this bias when especially in the hospital setting, I think among people who only work in the hospital where you like Kenny was saying, you only see the bad stuff all the time and and the people in crisis and and if if you do't if you don't practice addiction medicine and work in a person centered way because you were never trained to do that, you're not addressing pain like it seems like every time this goes crappy right and then like when I feel like when you finally get a hang of it and you have a team hopefully that's helping you out or you get used to it and people are starting to you feel like do better you like really start to love the work and the people who are taking care of those patients love the work and and so but but that being said it's not all like again daisies and roses every day and so like yeah having having hopefully a really good team that you're working with it's not just clinicians but also like counselors and peers that you can like sit down with and talk things through and debrief and we do like most most Fridays, we try to like stop and do like feel good Fridays where we like talk about wins purposefully of like, well, we, what were our wins this week? Like, who did we really help just to like some weeks you can really feel bogged down. But like remembering, like, even if you just really, really helped like one or two people that week, like that's one or two huge wins. Right. And so.
2: And I think we're really lucky here to have a pretty large addiction community where we're practicing. Yeah. So I'd encourage folks who maybe don't have that experience to connect with a professional organization, right? To find other people who have a shared mentality, because if it could really weigh on you, especially I think if you're isolated, so like reach out. Most addiction docs are very friendly and like love talking about stuff and advocating. So
0: don't be afraid to. We do have that an email chat. address. You can email us. We're here for you. Yeah. <laughs>
3: This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash addiction.
0: We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, and contact us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com and send more questions for hopefully next season's Q&A too. And a special thanks for Dr two, not four, to Dr. Matt Watto and Paul Williams for their support on this project, as well as ACAM, the American College
1: of Academic Addiction Med. Learn more from the organization at acam.org. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account.
2: Until next time, uh, I've been Dr. Carolyn Chan. I'm
3: Dr. Natalie Stahl.
1: (laughs) I'm Sean Cohen, also doctor. (laughs) And I'm Dr. Kenny Morford.
2: (laughs) Thanks for listening today and listening hopefully to the rest of our season. Have a good night.